Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Break in Genesis. So this morning we're looking at Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through uh, 5, 14, I believe. Yeah, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Let's read the word of God together here. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. Now I say that every week, um, grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You probably can, uh, maybe in your nightmares when I appear, I'm saying the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Uh, I've been saying that after every scripture reading that I've done for the past seven years and it's not because I can't think of anything else to say. Um, I have, that comes from Isaiah 40, uh, verse 8. Also, Peter uh, quotes that at the end of the first chapter in 1 Peter. And I, I, I realize that when you, up in front of, of a congregation, you know, week after week, year after year, I'm, I'm aware that there are very few things that actually that I say that are ever going to stick with what with as you as you hear uh, sermons over and over again. And so if there's a few things you can plant in someone's mind, I imagine that that for those of you who have heard me say this week after week after week, if there's something that Darren has tried to instill in me, it is this the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You know why that's an important thing that that actually 
that verse is very powerful. What it is talking about is the nature of, of our case as humanity. We are the flower fading. We are the grass withering. And we live in a very, um, very changing world. A world that will go upside down in a moment on you. That you will go to a routine visit somewhere at a doctor's office and then get terrible news where your life takes an entirely different direction just like that. Where you might get a phone call in the middle of the night and everything you thought life was going this way and you find out it's going that way. And things can change in the drop of a hat. And just like Andrew said, we live in a broken and a fallen world. We are the grass withering. As for man, his days are like grass. Read Psalm 103. He springs up and flourishes in his place. And then the wind passes over. It's, very, it's a very sobering part of Psalm 103. The wind passes over this place and the ground doesn't even remember it anymore. Anybody else have spots in their yard where I, I seed it every year and it grows up, this beautiful grass. And you think, oh, this is it. This is growing grass. And then the, a, little, a week of drought hits and all of a sudden it's just back to bare dirt. It's like I never planted grass at all. Psalm 103 says that that's, what hum- that's, that's the changing reality of this life. The grass withers, the flower fades. And so we all live, walk through this life with that reality, longing, what then can I hold on to? What can I anchor myself to that if I am the grass withering, I am the flower fading, and all around me is heaving and, and, and boiling all around me, where can I anchor my life? That when things go upside down, I can stand on something. And this is Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. It's actually a battle cry that uh, Lutheran armies use. I'm not defending the Lutheran armies, whatever cause they were after. But they put VDMA on their, on their, on their uh, shoulders, on their shields. Verbum domini manet in eternum. The word of our God, that's Latin for the word of our God, stands forever. And they're going into battle knowing that this may go really poorly for them. But they are standing upon one solid truth. God's word and God himself as the one who speaks lasts forever. And so there's a a part of, we're going to go into Galatians 3. Because that's what I've prepared. (laughs) But it isn't just because I couldn't think of anything else to say. It is so critical for us that we anchor ourselves in the word of God to us. And that with all the ups and downs of life, there is one firm place to put our feet. And it is in what has God has revealed himself to be for us. So we are, we are going ahead and tracking and anchoring ourselves in the text because this is where we can anchor our life in the midst of all the ups and downs that come our way. Because the grass does wither, the flower does fade, but the word of God stands forever. So the past several weeks, we have worked our way through the book of Genesis. And we're, like I said, we're breaking off to look at a few places in the New Testament to speak of Abraham. Abraham's actually his name. This is work that you all can do with just a simple search on your computer. His name is brought up 72 times in the New Testament. Uh, 30 so of those times, 31 of them are in the Gospels. Uh, where he is mentioned, the offspring of Abraham, children of Abraham, or just Abraham as reference. There's the whole um, reference of Lazarus and the rich man, and they go to they go to see to Abraham. And so there's the 31 times in the Gospels we have 
eight times his name is brought up in the sermons in the books, book of Acts. And so you begin to see this, this really interesting turning point with the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts, how Abraham is this huge figure with the early church as they are preaching about who Abraham is and his importance. Stephen, in his great sermon in Acts chapter 7, mentions Abraham five times. Abraham comes up over and over again. Of the nine times that uh, he is referenced by Paul in the book of Romans, seven of those times are in chapter 4, which, which is what we're going to look at next week. And of the nine times he's mentioned in the book of Galatians, eight of them are right here in this third chapter, with one being in chapter 4 as Paul finishes his argument. The only other book that makes as much mention of Abraham is the book of Hebrews. You probably can guess because we spent some time there when, the, the, when Melchizedek is being discussed, or Melchizedek. Uh, as, as, as Melchizedek is being discussed, Abraham comes up a lot in Hebrews chapter 6 and 7. So, Let's look at, there's one other really good reference or interesting reference to Abraham in the book of Hebrews. And let's, and to launch into Galatians, let's look at this reference in Hebrews chapter 2. This is Hebrews chapter 2. I, I invite you to turn there. I want you to see this for yourself. A great place to go uh, as we, uh, in desperate need for help. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14, says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, speaking about Jesus. He partook of these same things of flesh and blood. He became human. He became man. He incarnated. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, For surely... It is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who who are being tempted. Just as a very general point from this text, those who find God to be on their side are those who find themselves to be the offspring of Abraham. We're talking about this reality, this, this, this concept that's brought up over and over in Scripture of being the offspring of Abraham, the heirs of Abraham. Who are the offspring of Abraham. And we're going to get to that, but I want us to see this is why this is such good news to be the offspring of Abraham. Jesus and his incarnation, this coming seed of Abraham, as he is born, as he lives the, this, his righteous life and dies this sacrificial death, he doesn't do it to serve angels. That's the point of Hebrews 2. He doesn't do it to serve angels, to help them. He does it to help the offspring of of Abraham. Those are the one whom God helps. Do you want God's help? <laughs> Do you want God on your side? Do you want God to be for you? Are you and one of the offspring of Abraham? 
and from a genetical, like a, from a genealogical like uh, way of talking, I would imagine none of us, there might be some, we're kind of Americans are interesting. We might have some Jewish history in our blood, but none of us really are able probably to trace our genealogy all the way back to Abraham as a true descendant by nature from Abraham. So what is this talking about? Wouldn't it be good to have God's help? Can one really have that in the first place? And what would it look like to have God's help? For the news that we could have God's help to be good news, we must realize a few critical truths. There is a sovereign creator, and as the creator, he rules over it all. Not only is he sovereign and ruling over it all, he's actually omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He can and will accomplish all of his purposes. And thirdly, he is wise beyond our understanding. He's sovereign over it all. He is the creator. He is the maker. He owns it all. He is powerful over it all. And he is wise beyond our imagining. So we ask, what would it look like to have his help? Well, not necessarily that every circumstance will go exactly like we would like it to. That's what we think God's help is. God's help in our minds is everything I want to go this certain way. That's the way it's going to go. That's what it looks like to have God on my side. That's what it looks like to have God's help. But if that is what God's help means, that actually is to deny these first points of God being the sovereign creator and the one that is all-powerful over it all, that instead would confess ourselves to be all-wise. I know exactly what God should do next, and we turn him then into just our heavenly butler. God, this is what, this is, what is next. This is what needs to happen. And God, I need your help to do what I know to do. I need your omnipotence, but I don't want your omniscience. I don't want your all-knowing. I don't want your wisdom. I just want your power to achieve what I want to have happen. And we think this is what, this is, this is the category we put of what help from God looks like. But that is not the help that God gives us. We do not, God does not help us by making us the sovereigns over all things and then doing our wishes. He is not he is not the genie from Aladdin that grants us our wishes to perform our will. No, his help is that when all the details and events of this life are completed, he will be proved to have worked perfectly. When all the details and events of this life are completed, he will be proved to have worked perfectly. This is the end he is helping us toward. And I long for all of us, myself included, to not see this as some sort of consolation prize. What's, what's tragic is that we hear this, God does not do everything we want him to do. Instead, he does what we want to do and, and we'll be satisfied in the end. It's some sort of consolation prize. We act like some people, we, we live for the joy of this life and, and that, that some who live for the joy of this life and they get it. And some of us Christians we just have to settle for the joy of the next life. There are those who live for the joys of this life, and they get it, and that's great. But some of us, you know, the Christians, we, we just have to settle for the joy of the next life. But this is not the way Scripture relates these choices. We, as a modern people, 
are far too tied to our lives here in this world. All of our modern conveniences and safeties have convinced us that the good life is to be had here in this world. But here's some of this upside-down thinking of Christianity. It is only through coming to terms with the reality that the good life is found in the next, in a sin-free, an unbroken world, when Christ returns and makes all things new, when we can, when we can see that, when we can, the, the upside down thinking is that when we come to terms with the reality that the good life is to be found in the next, that we are actually liberated to enjoy this life for what it is. We're actually liberated to enjoy this life for what it is. Because it's not trying to carry the weight that it's never meant to carry. The reality, reality is that the same troubles come to everyone. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. So the question is not how to avoid trials and troubles. Because no one escapes this life unscathed. It is a broken world. It is a sorrow-filled world that Christ one day is going to redeem and make new. But until that day, no one avoids the trials, the difficulties, and the sadness here. The question is, what lies ahead after this? And the, the promised eternal future is no consolation prize, but the glorious end goal that all the scripture points us to. The day when we will be with our heavenly Father, our Creator, in the fullness of His joy, in the light of His presence, His face shining upon us, turned towards us, that, that beautiful benediction that may his face shine upon you and give you peace, that we will, now we see through a glass dimly, but then we will see him face to face. That glorious future, that is what the Bible points us toward. So what we are endeavoring to do this morning is to see how this good news of eternal hope can grip us and hold us today. How do we get that kind of help? How can we get this God to be for us, not in this temporal, um, momentary way, but in this eternal forever for the rest of all the days that we can imagine? How can we get God to be for us in that way? And Galatians tells us very specifically, it is through Christ and through faith in Him alone. Through Christ, God's enemies are made heirs. Through Christ, God's enemies are made heirs. I would clap for that too, guys. I'm serious. You're right on, man. Through Christ, God's enemies are made heirs. So let's go back into Galatians. Paul is actually addressing a problem with the Galatian church, right? False teachers have come in and have tried to teach the Galatians a false teaching. We're not going to go into, it's a, it's a fascinating book, really just it's to see the cohesiveness of this one book and the argument Paul is making is great. But specifically, they're wanting to bring back in circumcision. Like, it's great that you believe Jesus, but here's a ritual observance you still have to keep on top of believing in Jesus. Faith in Jesus, that he's like, faith in Jesus is great, but then here's all the things you need to do in addition to faith in Jesus. And Paul is coming in and, and blowing that argument apart. That's why he starts with, you foolish Galatians. That's being kind. It is, a, it is a put down that he's saying to the Galatians church. What is wrong with you? How stupid can you be? What, how can you have gone down this path? The simple logic that he puts forward is that what has saved them at the first 
will bring them all the way to their completed day. What has saved them in the, in the first place will continue to save them, namely faith in Christ. And so for our purposes this morning, those, Paul's main argument is how one really continues in their sanctification through faith in Christ. Paul argues that, that, that by making great use of this argument of Abraham, that not only he's making the argument of we're sanctified by faith, and he ties it all back to because you're justified by faith. You're justified, you are made right with God, not by the things that you do, but through faith in Christ, the seed of Abraham. He's, he's, so we're working the argument backwards a little bit because the, the book is about how you grow in Christ's likeness is not through white-knuckled effort and some sort of, I'm going to be, make myself more like Jesus. It's continued belief in Christ and his power to transform us and to make us like him. And he, he works that out of because you began, that's the way you begin, is through faith in Christ alone. We see this right, verses 1 through 6, Paul asks the simple question, if you began by faith, will you now go on by some other mechanism? And the answer is no. The life of the Christian is one that has lived just as it was started, like Abraham, by faith. This is the urgent issue for Paul. What's the pressing issue for us today? What, what, what question do we want answered the question Paul is constantly going after is, how can I be right with my creator? That's his concerning issue. <laughs> and we can have lots of questions about lots of things and all the issues we can talk about. But for Paul, the pinnacle burning issue is, how can I be found right with God? How can I, who was an enemy from God, running away from him, breaking his law, transgressing at every turn, Romans 7, wanting to do what is right, but then doing what is wrong, wanting to not do what is wrong, but then doing it. How can I escape this judgment? How can I find myself in favor with this God? How can I, as an enemy of God, not be crushed? That's the burning question for Paul. We don't think on these lines today. We're so tied to our world here. This is not the burning question we have. How can this holy, righteous, beautiful God not condemn me for the way that I have ruined what he has made. So Paul then answers that question by saying that all will come into God's favor by becoming a descendant of Abraham, a true descendant, one who is from Abraham. And that means not biologically descending from Abraham. This is the beautiful term. This is why Abraham is so important because Abraham, as our first father, is made righteous not by his actions, but by his faith in the promises of God. What an incredible reality this is. Verses 10 through 14, this blessing of Abraham that we've been looking at, this favor with God that rescues, secures, and guides Abraham through many different ups and downs in his life. And that one day Abraham looks forward, right? The book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham is longing for a city to come. He's looking to an eternal future, to a city that is not made by hands, but whose builder is God himself on a new heavens and a new earth, we would say in our New Testament eschatology. That there's this, this longing that he's looking for, this eternal future inheritance. And that inheritance, this of right standing with God, 
is given to anyone, even the enemies of God. What would we, how in the world can that happen? I mean, what would you do to be found in right standing with God such that no matter the tragedies, the trials, the difficulties, the struggles, the sorrows of this life, that when the final chapter of your life is closed, you have been promised eternal joy in the presence of your maker forever. What would you give to have that? How much of your life would you sacrifice to have endless days of joy and peace with your maker? What would you give? I mean, what, who would spare any expense to do that? And the gospel message is the expense has already been paid. It costs you nothing except to believe in Christ, to be found in him, and to die to self and to live to him. All the cost has been paid by Christ. Will you look to him? Will you trust him? Will you, will you place yourself in his care? What will we do to receive this? One who is in their right mind would work at almost any amount of work to secure this. Instead, we find it is freely given through trusting God and his promises. Look with me again at verse 14 in Galatians. I know we went all the way through this. We're just trying to take kind of the big idea out of this. But verse 14, this whole great exchange happens in verse 12 through 13. We, we deserve God's cursing. We are those who have run away from him. We are his enemies. But what we see in this great exchange is that the curse that we deserve is laid upon Christ. Cursed be everyone who has hung upon a tree. He really absorbs the curse of God under the law for his people. So that, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. We who were once far off can be found to be a part of the family of God. Adopted has not only the offspring of Abraham, we receive the promised spirit by faith. If you jump on down to verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, heirs of God. I like this guy. Bring him back every Sunday. I love it. Guys, <laughs> I'm with you. I, I'm going to start pausing every time I want an affirmation. It's good news. So you hear me say the grass withers, fire fades a ton of times. I hope you also hear me say, Jesus Christ, live the righteous life we should have lived. Die the death that we deserve. So that everyone, Gentiles, Jew, whoever you may be, no class, no nationality, no nothing matters, Anyone who would turn from their sin and look to Christ in his righteous life, trusting him, would be forgiven of their sin and adopted into God's family, made one of his own. That is the good news of the gospel. And that is the anchor that when life goes upside down, when you get the cancer diagnosis, when you find your kid in the hospital, when, you, when everything seems to just throw you and roll you, where can I anchor myself? It is that no matter the ups and downs of this temporal, sinful, fallen world, I am anchored in a God who has made me one of his very own children, not because of my own merit, but because of Christ and what he has done. This is the good news of the gospel. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. How does this help us today? If we can lift our eyes to the truth of becoming heirs of God, 
It ought to strengthen us and encourage us for what we have to face in our lives today. Go to Romans chapter 5. I heard a story once of a traveler on the way to the city, and this is back in the days of horse and buggies. I think Spurgeon is the one who told it, and he'll better than me, then I'm going to tell it now. But I couldn't find the reference, or I'd have read it to you. But Spurgeon tells the story of a traveler on the way to the city, and is in their horse and buggy, and they're going to pay bills. And they've got and they get their they've got a job to fulfill. They've got some tasks they've got to get done in the city, and and they're in comfort. Everything's going great, riding nice and long on the smooth road, and just miserable because of what they have to go do, and that there's no point really to all of it. They just got to come back home and no 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 fun in going to the city, and they pass a traveler whose carriage has broken down, horse has gone lame, uh, walking in the ditch, covered in mud. Uh, bleeding from wrecking the carriage, whatever you might, you know, just in a terrible state. And they, they drive by this person and they're, they're whistling. They're, they're enjoying the travel to the city. And the guy has, it's so distinct from this guy who's living in comfort and traveling with comfort to the city. It's such a distinction from him that he has to stop and ask, what are you doing? How, how can you travel in such hard condition with such joy? And the guy said that he was going, going, his travel to the city, his trip to the city was that he was going to receive a great inheritance. That he had great wealth promised to him, great joy promised to him in the city. And once he gets there, all will have been made right. All will make sense. All will be understood. And so he was able to travel through hardship and difficulty and ups and downs and struggle and strife and sorrow because of where he was going in a world that seems so much against me what does it mean that God is for me well it is this inheritance it is that what we can have something that truly matters and truly lasts and this is where Paul goes in Romans chapter 5 I love this passage Um, ESV says it a little differently than I memorized it but you still get the point but you you look at Romans chapter 5 and starting there in verse 3 it's talking about, well, let's start in verse 1. Let's just read a few verses here. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, again, hearing the, the, the idea of faith, we have peace with God. Mm, that's, that is good news. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is no stranger to suffering persecution, beating, loss of life to so many of the other apostles that he would have known and been around martyred for their faith. Him being a part of some of their own martyrs, martyrdoms understands the suffering and the hurt and the trauma and the difficulty of this life. And yet, verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. The way that I, I can't, whatever translation it was that said this, is that hope will not disappoint us. That at the great final day of Christ Jesus, suffering producing endurance, endurance endurance producing character, character producing hope, and that hope in the final analysis 
we will not find ourselves disappointed for having trusted and, found, and found, having found ourselves by faith justified with God through the work of Christ. We will not be disappointed. Where does that leave us this morning? If we are only tied to the things of this life, I'm afraid it doesn't take us very far. But if we are convinced of the eternality of the soul, of there being something beyond this life, then we have the news that God helps the offspring of Abraham. Those who believe in Christ, the true seed of Abraham, they become an inheritor of the promise to Abraham. And that promise is right standing with God. And further, to become actual heirs of God himself. How do we face the trials and tragedies of this life and not get crushed by knowing Christ? by trusting him, by knowing that he helps the offspring of Abraham, by giving them what? By giving them himself. By having God himself, by becoming a part of his family, such that through all the sufferings of this life, we're able, we're able to walk through them, producing endurance, producing character, because they finally they produce hope. And that hope on that great final day will not leave us disappointed. It will not put us to shame. How do we face the trials and tragedy of this life and not get crushed? By knowing Christ and trusting him. By believing the promise that God helps those who are the offspring of Abraham by faith. And by resting in the assured future that is ahead for all of God's people. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would ground us in this hope. There is so much sorrow and trial and troubles and sufferings in this life. Father, we need an anchor that is beyond the, the veil as Hebrews talks about. That we have a sure and steady anchor for the soul beyond the veil in the curtain of heaven where Christ has gone as our mediator and as our intercessor. Father, I pray for every heart in this place this morning. And Father, we pray for those in our community who are suffering, who are questioning, who are struggling, who are full of sorrow. Father, would you have mercy? Would you give us an anchor? Would you work in our hearts, God, that like Come Thou Fount said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, so full of questions and, and worries and sorrows and and, and wandering, and, and wandering hearts. God, would you bind our hearts to you. Take our heart, Lord, like a fetter. Bind our wandering hearts to thee. Father, we thank you that there is good news in the midst of sorrows and troubles and trials of this life that flip us on our heads and turn us all around. That, Father, there is, that you are the creator and maker of all things. You are powerful over it all. And you are the God who helps the offspring of Abraham, those who by faith, trusting in Christ, have become a part of your family. God, may we be anchored there and there alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.